if you can call it that, in Europe, and also having come across the words of uh, one of my former professors as he addressed the opening assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America based on the text we're going to be looking at, I decided this afternoon to preach to you on the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So please turn with me in your Bibles this afternoon to Jude, which has only one chapter, and we'll be looking at the first four verses. Jude, verses 1 to 4. Hear now God's word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, while I was giving all diligence to write unto you of our common salvation, I was constrained to write unto you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in privately, even they who are of old written of beforehand, unto this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And thus far the reading of God's Word. This afternoon we're going to focus just on verse 3, but there are an amazing number of things we can learn from verse 3. Verse 3 in the New American Standard Version says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you, now listen to these words, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. I'm going to look at that expression piece by piece. First of all, the faith. In our own day and age, modern ecumenical religionists want to substitute faith for the faith. And do you understand the significance of that? They want to substitute believing the act or personal event of believing in something beyond ourselves, to substitute that for the definite content of a particular belief system. They want faith, but they don't want the faith. Existentialist theology emphasizes believing in. You have to look at the preposition that is used here. It's very important. Believing in something. That is, they emphasize the personal act of trust. But the object of that trust is irrelevant. They do not think it's important that you believe that certain truths are the case. Believing is not a rational matter. It's not a matter of uh, knowledge. It's not a matter pertaining to uh, epistemic things having to do with our knowing. Believing is an existential, is a psychological and personal act. And so the thrust in our day and age is not upon the faith, but it's rather upon the personal act of trusting in something, the act of believing. Well, for ecumenical religionists and existentialist theologians alike, for both of these groups, what a person believes will be relative to his times and relative to his culture, relative to his own personal experience and his own personal needs. Indeed, we heard about that, as David said, uh, the uh, Protestant church in France believes that no one should declare that there is the faith to be believed, but every individual has his own particular needs and will come to the Bible with those, and that's what he gets from the Bible. 
but biblical Christianity stands squarely over against that idea with its man-centered subjectivism. And biblical Christianity asserts the God-centered indispensability of absolute truth, an absolute truth that has been revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Our commitment is, as Jude said, to the faith. And notice this isn't just any faith system. He doesn't say that our commitment should be to some body of truths and then you choose. He says rather it is a commitment to the faith. It is not sufficient that someone believe in some kind of a deity among the many options that are offered in the world. Christian commitment is to the faith, the one and only, the well-known corpus of doctrine which the one and only living and true God has communicated with infallible reliability and power in the Bible. This alone is the power of God unto salvation. And so Jude speaks of the faith, but he also speaks of the faith delivered. You notice that? Jude says of this one and only faith that it has been delivered. Now I want you to take note of that fact. For the faith which defines Christianity and informs our commitment was not suggested by the rational powers and the creativity of anything within man. The faith was not spun out of our heads based either upon our imagination or upon our best scientific study. The faith was delivered to us. The faith was from outside ourselves. It was not our doing. And it has nothing to do with the way I like to think about God. It has nothing to do with our own personal religious opinions. For according to the Bible, our religious opinions are not simply misleading, not simply wrong, but our religious opinions are simply irrelevant. It makes no difference what you would like to believe. It makes no difference what your opinion is. The faith is something we have received from God, delivered by Him to us. And so the content of the faith that we follow as Christians is delivered from the Lord Himself. He is the origin. He is the source of that absolute truth which we believe with all of our hearts. The scriptures which we believed were breathed out by God Himself. These scriptures are the very words of God. He is their author, and because He is their author, what the scriptures say is beyond challenge. What the scriptures say is beyond alteration. So Jude speaks of our being committed to the faith, a faith which has been delivered to us. But would you notice how Jude describes the recipients of this faith? To whom has God delivered this precious body of truth, the faith? Jude indicates that it's been delivered to the saints. That is, to use a paraphrase of the language found there, it's been delivered to those who are holy. And the word holy means set apart or consecrated. Those who have been set apart from the world and consecrated by God. You see, Jude could have called them the elect, the chosen of the Lord, those who are called out from the world to be God's people. The expression, it seems to me, should teach us at least two things this afternoon. First of all, the expression reminds us that the truth which comes from God has been delivered to his ancient people. It was the faith delivered to the saints. And the Old Testament people of God were called out by him and elect. The saints of the Old Covenant were recipients of God's word. 
Indeed, that word from God was necessary to define them and to direct them as his special people in the midst of a fallen world. The Old Testament Jews are properly called the people of the book. Theirs was a religion of Torah. Theirs was a religion of verbal instruction and discipline, which came from the very mouth of God. And this God who spoke to his Old Testament people does not change, and he never says anything needlessly. What he spoke is important in defining the faith. And thus every bit of the Old Testament is part of the faith that has been delivered to the saints. Christian faith is not simply defined by reference to the New Testament. You should notice how the New Testament apostles and early preachers proclaimed their message from the Old Testament scriptures. Notice how the New Testament writers proved their points and buttressed the authority of what they say by saying, it stands written. They refer to the Old Covenant scriptures because Christianity is defined by the Old and the New Testaments together. The faith delivered from God to the saints includes then all of what God has delivered through the ages to his people. But we learn something else too. The fact that God has delivered the faith to the saints points us to another truth worth bearing in mind. Those who are the blessed possessors of the precious gospel message need to be a holy people. The church, as the depository of God's word and the beacon for its proclamation to the world, must be characterized by purity, must be characterized by godly living. And so it is scandalous when the public spokesmen for Christ are caught in compromising sin, and we've seen that recently. It is scandalous when the gathered assemblies of professed believers tolerate and ignore open sinful living by those in their midst, and we see that all around us. It is scandalous when those who claim the name of Christ before men take that name in vain and bring disgrace upon the gospel by their inconsistent and their easily faulted morals. As those who are blessed to have the sacred truth of God in our very hands, those who confess it from our hearts, it behooves us all to make sure we live up to the title of saints, both individually and corporately as a church. Jude speaks of the faith that has been delivered from God outside of ourselves and delivered to the saints. But he provides further insight when he calls that faith God has delivered to his saints, something which was delivered once for all. Once for all. The faith is not a growing, not an evolving, not a changing body of thought. It has been now delivered in its finalized form and is in need of no modification to suit the times. It's in need of no modification to adjust to man's feelings. It is an unwavering foundation for certainty. The long historical process of progressive revelation from God has now come to an end. He has spoken his ultimate and his final word in Jesus Christ, as we see in Hebrews 1, verse 1, and has spoken through Christ, authorized representatives, the apostles, as we see in Ephesians 2.12. And this truth is not worn out by time, it's not worn out by circumstances, it doesn't evolve to keep up with man's self-understanding, it need not be modified to fit into modern culture. It is a truth which, like, unlike anything else available to the mind of man, is once and for all the truth. And so as biblical Christians, we are committed 
to the finality of God's spoken word found in the scriptures. We affirm without embarrassment the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith when it says that to scripture nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. You'll find that in chapter 1, section 6 of the Confession. God's holy word, the word that defines our precious faith, stands complete, lacking nothing whatsoever. And we must maintain that over against three groups in our day that are seriously misleading men. We must maintain the completeness of God's revelation and the finality of its scriptural expression against modernists, the neo-orthodox theologians, who look for the word of the living Christ, as they say, in the crisis encounter of the individual. According to neo-orthodox theology, God's word is not found or identified with this book and the actual rational propositions read therein, but God's word is found in the crisis of my religious experience when Jesus encounters me. It's the living Christ that we follow, according to these theologians. The living Word of God, not this dead Word in the Scriptures. They often feel that the living Christ is revealing Himself not only in the individual's crisis moments of faith, but also in the pronouncements of the assemblies of these liberal denominations. And we need to maintain the once-for-allness of the faith found in the Scriptures against that sort of thing that's misleading people today. Secondly, we must maintain it against Romanists who add the authoritative interpretation of church tradition to the Word of God in the Bible. Romanists who tell us it's not enough that we have the written Word of God. We need the living church to interpret that Word and to declare through an infallible Pope what it means. Something which stands over against the Reformed motto of sola scriptura. And thirdly, in our day, we need to maintain the completeness of God's final revelation against the enthusiasts of early days, the Anabaptists, and the enthusiasts of our day, the Charismatics, who maintain that God's Spirit continues to give individual believers verbal revelations which supplement, if not supersede in some cases, the written Word of God. We need to maintain, we do not need, after the closing of the canon, continuing special revelation from the Spirit. You see, already in the earliest days of the Christian church, Jude knew that the living Word, Jesus Christ, had sufficiently revealed His Word in the written Scriptures. Jude knew that without the need of further charismatic outpourings of revelation, without the need of human traditions to interpret it, God had delivered the faith once and for all. In Jude's own day, the faith had been delivered from God in complete form. And in our day, we do not need new words from the Spirit. We do not need authoritative pronouncements of church hierarchies. We have in our possession the infallible, the authoritative, and the sufficient. It's the very Word of God, which is beyond supplementation. And so let's review what Jude has taught us. He's taught us that first, Christian commitment is tied to the faith, not just any act of trust, not just any system of truth. He's taught us, secondly, that the faith we follow is defined by God Himself having been delivered to us from outside ourselves. He has taught us, thirdly, that this faith carries us back to God's saints of old and the Word delivered to them as well 
as bringing us into the New Testament. And this faith is to be maintained and proclaimed by a holy people who care for the purity of the church and the purity of their own lives. Fourthly, Jude has taught us this definite body of truth delivered by God himself in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and maintained by a holy people of his choosing is perfectly complete. It is sufficient, having been given once for all. And those four truths tell us something precious, something indispensable about the nature of Christianity itself. Anything which falls short of what we have just described is not true Christianity. It is substandard. It is unacceptable. It is not the real thing. It's an imposture. It may be more popular. It may be more acceptable to modern men. But it is surely not the Christian faith. And simple intellectual honesty requires us to admit that fact. Anything that falls short of the certainty and absoluteness of which we've been speaking cannot be the Christian faith. But what does Jude tell us to do, those of us who are committed to the faith once for all delivered to the saints? What are we to do about that? Well, he says very simply, contend earnestly for it. Don't take it for granted Don't stand by idly when it is attacked. Don't be a passive spectator when it is being distorted. We are to vigorously and sincerely stand up for the truth and stand against its detractors. The verb that is used by Jude here in the original Greek suggests an athletic contest in which someone agonizes toward victory striving with all his might to become the winner. Jude says, agonize for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This faith calls for active adherents who give it everything they have, not spectators who enjoy the contest from the idle comfort of their seats. We're to agonize for the faith. And why not? Why not? What is at stake here? Nothing less than the kingdom of God and the glory of God. And Jesus instructed us that that should be our highest priority, didn't he? He said in our lives we should seek first the kingdom of God and his glory. Above all, number one on the list, our highest priority. We should be willing to die for the faith. We should be willing to swear our sacred honor to its propagation and to its defense. You see, our friends, we can't have the spirit of cool detachment and detente. When the deity of Christ and his lordship are ignored, when they are repudiated, we cannot be silent. When the ethical relativism of the new morality is overtaking even those who profess to be Christians, we cannot pretend to be unfazed by that. When the glorious truth of the gospel is being distorted, when it is being poorly represented by men, we cannot be indifferent to its life-giving truth. When the church is slipping from its confessional purity, when its members are not being disciplined for their unrepentant conduct, we cannot be unconcerned. We must agonize to hold forth the beacon light of the precious faith once and for all delivered unto the saints. For the sake of the Christian faith, Jude beseeches us to contend with every ounce of our might in pure sincerity before God. No other cause, we should be willing to give to no other cause more. And for this cause, 
the faith once for all delivered to the saints, none of us can afford to give any less. Father, we pray that you would awaken us from our slumbers and our idleness and our taking for granted the precious truth of which we have become possessors by your grace. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to see how important is this faith which we enjoy. A faith which has not been concocted by men, not something which has been spun out of our own creativity, but a faith delivered by you and delivered once and for all in its finalized, unchallengeable form. A faith which is the very foundation of our lives and our hope of heaven. We pray that you would awaken us to what's happening around us in the churches of Jesus Christ and in the culture that is affected by those churches. Awaken us to the need to contend again sincerely and earnestly for that faith. To agonize that we might defend it and propagate it and see that your people are informed by it in everything that they do and say. We pray you would forgive us for our being lackadaisical in these matters. Forgive us for our lack of intensity. Forgive us for our lack of consistency. Forgive us for our so often being more concerned with ourselves than with the state of the Christian church in our day. We do pray, Father, that you would give us a love, even as Jude enjoyed, a love for that faith which you have delivered to the saints and have done so once and for all. For we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.